from 11FS, I'm David Breer and this is Fintech Insider. On today's show, we break free with borderless bank accounts. Simon is forced to talk about Apple Pay. Are we waiting too long for APIs from banks? And is Zcash going to resurrect crime in cryptocurrencies? All this and more in episode 256. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fintech Insider News. We are coming to you live from WeWork London in a slightly less furnacey office than the last one. Apparently you guys had a bit of a temperature problem, is that right? Well, I'm glad it's solved for us today. It's hot out but cold in, which is nice. I'm David Breer and today I'm joined by my Fintech Insider regular colleagues, Simon Taylor and Jason Bates. Say hey guys. Hey. Hello. And joining us today, we have Richard Davies, who is the Global Head of Propositions for HSBC Commercial. Say hey, Richard. Hey. So everybody is here. We have our drinks in our hand. Let's get on with the news. So kicking us off with the news, first up, we have an article on TechCrunch here. This is TransferWise launches a borderless account for business sole traders and freelancers. Jason, this looks pretty interesting. Yeah, I guess it follows... Interestingly, on the tales of Revolut landing and expanding from a very much a, a forex space into more current account. And here we've got TransferWise who recently have announced that they're now making a profit, moving from pure remittance into a borderless account. And Steve O'Hare, who wrote the uh, TechCrunch article, points out that anyone who's opened a startup business account in the UK and requested a second currency account, such as one for euros, knows the pain point that they're aiming at very well. Um, I guess it is another example of a fintech that's now looking to to expand their services. They're still focused very much on the, the Forex piece, and I guess taking aim at the incumbent banks. It's an interesting one, you know, off the back of TransferWise becoming profitable and was it six years in, you know, they've started to really sort of diversify, I guess, around what their core purpose was in the first place. For me, it's interesting because there's a bit of story out there at the moment about how VCs are getting less interested in fintech. Fintech wasn't delivering the returns and it has, but there's an old saying in the banking industry that the, the industry moves in seven-year increments and startups did it in six. So that's that's progress. Um, but TransferWise were always taking on something that was typically, traditionally a high margin, high volume business and doing a low volume, low margin. So it was going to be difficult to make profit without diversifying. And that's exactly what they've done. They've diversified into this borderless account. And I can see it uh, as a as somebody who's a co-founder in a small business. Like uh, dealing with the banking is is you know, from a small business perspective. There's a need for more out there. I think um, this idea as well, this marketing around borderless. I really like that idea. It's like I want to break free. I've got my borderless account, and I'm gonna sing Queen badly. Yeah, I thought you were gonna break into a Freddie Mercury ballad. Yeah, no, I really Simon Taylor, global citizen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you know me by my real name. <laughs> did did TransferWise are they like a you know, are people fearful yet? You know, I guess when you look at sort of transferwise on the like global remittances scale, if against somebody like Western Union, it's a it's a blip. But you know, are people concerned yet? Do we think? You're kind of lucky at my way, aren't you? At that point. So listen, I guess clearly we've got a pretty wide international footprint. I guess the question for me is how big are the companies they're seeking to target here? I think we came out talking about freelancers, sole traders, and I think that is probably an underserved niche um, that's out there. I'm also kind of really interested in what the um, proposition is here. Are they able to offer immediate payment cross-border? Are they using existing rails behind that? I think some really interesting features around the proposition here to kind of look at. Um, but yeah, certainly if, if you go up the spectrum to the sort of established companies looking to operate in, in uh, a number of countries, that's very much a space that we care about dearly because it's uh, kind of core to our, our USP as a firm. And that's the nature of disruptive innovation is serve the underserved. Although the branding and the marketing has traditionally been, oh, look how evil banks are and we're something else. I think this idea of moving away from that into here's a proposition that supports you is a positive message is something that I applaud, actually. I think that's that's far, far more interesting than just look how evil somebody else is. I, I don't know if I like that. I, I think it's interesting, though, like I say, off the back of the, ooh, look, we're profitable. Ooh, we're going into a market that might not be profitable. You know, it's <laughs> kind of like it's a, you know, they, they dipped into the green or the black, depending on how anal you are about accounting, and then actually moved into a segment that may or may not prove to be, you know, sort of profitable in the long term. But rather than us just guessing what, what those guys are doing, we managed to catch up with Joe Cross. And Joe is the US general manager and global marketing lead for TransferWise. So let's see what Joe had to say. 
I'm here with Joe Cross, the General Manager of North America and Global Marketing Lead for TransferWise. Joe, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. Great to be here. Uh, thank you. Joe, uh, tell us about Borderless Banking, um, a great new product launch that's, uh, I think, uh, very, very innovative. Tell us more about it. Yeah, it's very exciting for, um, for us and uh, our customers. Um, so TransferWise has been around for six, seven years now. And um, over that time, we've been focused on solving the problem um, of international money transfers, which um, historically are incredibly expensive and slow. And it's, it's a completely broken part of the um, global banking sector, actually, and from a customer's perspective anyway. Our customers have these global lives. They, they're not confined to one country. They live across borders. They work across borders. And the problem is that traditional bank accounts are completely confined to one country and they only work properly in one country. So let me, t let me tell you a little bit about what the account does and how it works, and how, how we're planning to roll it out. So, so it starts as a product which actually is really best for small businesses and freelancers. Later in the year, we'll, we'll be doing a full uh, consumer launch. But for now, the product is open. It is open for everyone, but we, we believe based on testing that it's really best and perfect for small businesses and freelancers. Um, so there are two, two main features to the account, which, um, which during beta testing, it was great to see people really using it and loving these features. And now a few days into being public, um, same story. So, so the first feature is that um, the borderless account actually gives you local bank details in multiple countries, which means that if you live in the UK, you can literally just in a couple of taps get a local bank account in the US and in Europe, which previous to this product, you'd have had to live there or certainly at least visit. And it's a long, arduous process. And, and we've reduced that process down to a couple of clicks. And what that's useful for is anyone that's receiving money from abroad. So if you imagine you're a, a freelancer, let's say, living in London, you have a client in Berlin, let's say. Um, previously, you'd be putting your UK bank details on, on the invoice that you're sending out to Berlin. And the, the, the German client has to then pay with an international transfer, which is, as we know from our experience of trying to solve international transfers, is, is difficult. And it's costly, and both sides lose money. But with the borderless account, the freelancer in London can just say to their German client, hey, yeah, here's, here's my Euro bank details. And then the, the German client just pays them as if they were paying someone who also lives in Berlin. So, so it takes all, all the pain out. And then, then the euros then sit within the um, customer's borderless account. Um, and they can do that for US, UK, and Europe. The second feature, which, is, which people are finding very useful, is um, the account can hold 15 different currencies. Um, and we're going to be adding a lot more. Um, and then once you have funds in the account, you can switch between them instantly. So... What that means is that someone, for example, that has inc incomings and outgoings in Europe, previously they would be receiving money from abroad back to London and then they'd be sending money back out into Europe, getting hit twice by bad exchange rates, getting hit twice by all the associated fees. So now what they can do, they can uh, spin up their borderless account and get Euro bank details. They hold the money in euros and then they can just ping the money out. Um, from um, from their borderless account all over Europe without ever um, having to do an exchange rate conversion. So it, you know, it allows businesses or freelancers to basically hold a local bank account without actually having one. And um, yeah, it's pretty cool. And uh, the, the, the feedback from Beta and Day One is like, it's just super positive. You can see on Twitter, um, we think the world needs this. Well, I, I think you're right. Um, I guess uh, one of my questions would be, any AML challenges, so anti-money laundering challenges, you know, extra regulatory challenges of yes, it's an um, account in the UK, but for the US or for EU? In terms of uh, regs, it's, it's essentially an e-money uh, product. So it, it's not different in terms of AML. So we've always had to take that very seriously from day one, right? So to be, to be in this business, it's something you have to do. Um, you have to do perfectly and adhere to some very stringent regulations, which which actually we're very supportive of because ultimately in the business of moving people's money around, you know, it shouldn't be something that anyone can go and set up a business to do. It should, it should be hard because it's such a, such an important thing. So it's no different really customers who, who use the platform still have to verify themselves in the same way. Um, so that, but, but the cool thing is, is that you can do that once and then you have this account, which then works around the world. So you don't have to go and get verified again in, in another country. So it's like like kind of one one global verification. So from, from personal experience, I thought it was quite, well, it was kind of amusing in a dark way when I moved to the US a couple of years ago. 
And I was an HSBC customer in the UK and I naively walked into a US branch of HSBC and just assumed that they would be able to find me in the system. And um, no, absolutely not. They could not find me in the system. I, I was uh, treated like a completely new customer, had to go through all the rigmarole of getting myself verified and you know account opened. And this is a company that prides itself on being the world's local bank. And it was just a, such a disparity between what I thought should be possible and then what was actually possible when I walked into that branch. If I'd have had a borderless account then, I would have had none of those issues. And so is the opening point uh, UK only or can you open in the US? Can you open? Where, where are you starting to uh, be able to open accounts from? So it's open now in uh, UK, um, across the EEA, so most of Europe and a couple of other countries. And then we're just beginning the US rollout now as well. Um, so over the next few months, it'll be available across um, all of the US. And then towards the end of the year, then we'll start to start to roll out in all the countries that we have um, customers in already on TransferWise. I guess this brings you into TransferWise, the debit card as well, you know, the, all the tools to go with a traditional account? Down the line, yes. Yeah, that's the plan. So yeah, and that, you know, I mean, at the moment we're we're still focused on just rolling out this this first product everywhere. Um, but yeah, there's there's all sorts that we can do once um, once we find out what people are asking for. That's that's really how we run the business. It's more we we have you know some sense of strategy, but really what we actually do is just take loads of customer feedback and find out what people are quite literally asking us for when they call um, when they call us or email. Um, so um, so yeah, and they are asking for that. So it's certainly on the list. Fantastic to hear, you know, a true customer-centric company, not just one that's idly saying it. Uh, Well, I wish you all the best with the product. Like I said before, I think you've got a, I don't want to use the term game changer because it's overused, but um, yeah, I think uh, you're going to set a lot of cats amongst a lot of pigeons. So good luck with it. Great. Thank you very much. Awesome. Good to hear from Joe, but so how does this sort of differ from some of the things that are out in the market? So something like Revolut, how does it really sort of separate itself? Is it the same thing? I think I think the thing is, we don't know. From what he was saying, and I know we've spoken to a variety of small businesses on the kinds of things that they're into, and one of the, the stories that comes back are people do have different bank accounts in, in different countries and different ways of sending money around. So the I think the, the way it does differ from Revolut is that Revolut has that singular IBAN or account number and sort code you can send money to, whereas this, I assume, has a variety of them depending on which currency, which country, you know, which relationship you, uh, you're using. So it sounds more like they're opening client money accounts in different geographies on behalf of the small business rather than they have an account and in those geographies and they're managing the client monies themselves. So Revolut being the second one and TransferWise being the first one. It's a slightly different technical banking approach, but it achieves the same goal. Speculation on my part, but it'd be interesting to see how much take-up there is of this and how much do people want it because uh, there are definitely... It feels like there's a need when we speak to small businesses out there, but um, I'd love to see some numbers on this one in the near future. I think generally it's it's great to see fintech starting to sort of diversify a little bit, and um, you know it'll be time will tell whether this is the the one that really sort of starts to gather pace in terms of you know adoption. But great to see somebody making a beachhead and then actually starting to go into something else when it's deemed successful. So uh, we will see wait on what happens. Up next, we have one on the BBC. So, Jason, this is another one for you. And this is BBC Fool's HSBC voice recognition security system, which is an interesting headline. What happened here? So you, you sat me next to Richard as I, uh, as I have a story on, on someone hacking a security feature. It's one of those classic stories, really. You look, have to look at the voice recognition, you know, my name is Jason, my voice is my password kind of thing. There's the Samsung iris scanner that was recently hacked with a picture of an iris and a contact lens. You know, no security system is unhackable. It's just how much time and effort it takes in order to do it. So essentially what the BBC did for a for a quick headline was to get two twins. So um, Dan and Joe, who are apparently non-identical twins, but still obviously brothers. And Dan mimicked Joe's voice, used the bank account, and then essentially pretended to be his brother and apparently successfully managed it. 
So is the moral of this, don't trust your brother? Or is like the, <laughs> the, the moral of this sort of something else? Because I, I guess none of these systems are ever absolute, are they, in terms of what they're doing? So, you know, the idea that any of these things are just increasing the fidelity around the security sort of makes sense to me. But they're never going to be 100% secure, are they? I do think there's something in journalism where they just love to punch holes in technology. It's like technology is sold as this amazing thing. And then it's like, ah, we tricked it. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you tricked it. But it's still better than what was there before. So, like, I mean, if you want to trick something, try tricking forging a signature. That's not very hard. Like, a signature legally just has to be any bit of pen on any bit of paper, and it can be legally accepted. So that's pretty low security compared to voice biometrics. The, yes, there are ways to hack it, but generally I'm, I'm just, uh, I just find these stories really cynical, and it's peacocking by the journalist, in my opinion. BBC have had a few of these lately as well, haven't they? Like the last few of it's them, a bit where Luddite, isn't it? yeah, they had a they had like a big go at the guy at first direct, didn't they? And there was a few of them that just sort of seems like sensationalist, and I probably expect a little bit more from the BBC if I'm honest. I mean, what I said, I mean, listen, clearly taking uh, security of customers' personal details is paramount for us. But I guess the good thing of technology like this is it's parameterized and you can change the parameters to learn and adapt and make it more secure as you go along, which is clearly something we've done on the back of doing this. And I, I sort of take your point there around um, most things can be hacked. And I guess if two brothers wanted to give each other their old password, that's actually easier than uh, hacking the, the voice um, system. So to a degree, there's um, that point of uh, if people want to collude on stuff, they can always hack into things. I, I guess the key for me is that we, we keep moving forwards with this sort of technology. It's something we're, we're actually very proud of. We're the, I think, biggest um, consumer of voice biometrics in, in the world, actually. We launched it for our commercial banking customers um, last month. And we, we do see actually a reduction in fraud on the back of that because then you can spot fraudsters between the retail bank and the commercial bank. And, and I think that's really very much about the future, but you've got to learn as you go and keep uh, making sure you're moving forwards. Yeah. And in a way, the BBC did you a favor here because like, they found a loophole and now you're going to work as hard as possible to close it. So I think, frankly, um, the, the journalists may have got some some mileage out of out of doing it. But I mean, we've, we've done research at 11FS before where we were able to find that it was relatively trivial to uh, kind of uh, do the face recognition things and, yeah, the and, and get into those with the live video and, and hold the phone to the phone with these things you can always think up ways of doing them but actually if they're better than what goes before there is this whole like distrust of new technology that i think plays really well to a mass market but actually it confuses the mass market because when we're so worried about phishing when we're so worried about people just looking after their password properly when the biggest problems are people not upgrading from windows xp or windows 7 to windows 10 with the WannaCry attack or really sort of upgrading and going to os x right uh, I'm not <laughs> just or, or even better ubuntu um but <laughs> if those are the biggest problems we have in the market, then stories like this just confuse uh, a population that could actually be better protected. And if we want them to not suffer fraud, don't confuse them, give them the tools to do the basics right. So it's hygiene with this stuff. Yeah. We were saying exactly the same thing, actually, earlier today about people's perception of risk versus the real risk. There's something just very interesting there about the, the skewed way that sort of media portrays risks and, and how that works. And that, you know, is it that someone's going to, uh, are we increasing risk because someone uh, is going to attempt to to fool this with your voice? Or actually, are we reducing it because previously you used a four-digit pin and a password that anyone could have copied and seen? And this is my point about peacocking, right? So somebody feels really clever because they found a way to hack the secure thing, and it feels really topical. But actually, if it's better than what was there before... I do, I do fear slightly that, again, going back to the sort of slightly sensationalist headline stuff is like, my mum's been scared of contactless payments for ages, right? So, and, and, and the mainstream media can sometimes inhibit people's usage of stuff just by sort of spreading some fear about it. But again, we'll, we will see where we get to. Fear sells, man. Fear sells. And I, I guess also, though, like people should challenge technology. Technology for technology's sake is not a good thing. The right thing for somebody to do is for them to be secure and safe and trust their bank and trust their money. But, eh. Indeed. We're moving into sort of reasonably awkward territory on this next one, which we have Simon talking about Apple Pay. This is going to be interesting. So <laughs> Apple Pay now supports higher value transactions at most UK contactless tills. Simon, tell us more. Well, as uh, many of you who've tried contactless in the UK or Australia or around most of Europe and even in the US will have found that um, you have a limit for how much you can spend contactless. So this is when I go with my debit or credit card. I want to buy something in a store and there's either a $30, £30, 30 euro limit in terms of how much I can actually buy. 
which is exactly the same if you take out your Apple phone and try and buy something. You are limited to £30, $30, 30 euros, which, you know, kind of works pretty well if you're buying a sandwich or if you're buying just um, a train ticket or something like that. But if you want to really forget about and leave your cards at home, then you probably need to be able to make higher value purchases. So it kind of makes sense that Apple has now built in a new layer of security that allows you to make a payment with a pin that would mean that you're now actually making a full um, card present transaction with it. Um, but the problem here is not all of the point-of-sale terminals are actually capable of that new standard from Apple, and they don't support it. So now you're going to have people walking around with their phones going to pay for something more expensive, and the first experience they're going to have is, oh, sorry, our till doesn't accept this. Now now I see why Simon's talking about this one. <laughs> okay, here we go. But granted, we had that with contactless. We had that with chip and pin. We will get over that. That's not going to be an issue. Um, there's always an adoption curve. There's always time to come to it. But what I would like about this article on TechCrunch is um, Apple say the use of Apple Pay has grown 300% in the last year, with 23 banks supporting the service in the UK, although apparently it's not breaking out any hard user numbers yet. And if you um, go back to the first ever episode of Fintech Insider, that was one of the first things we talked about, is Apple Pay had been much ballyhooed. Um, there were riots on Twitter for certain banks that hadn't introduced Apple Pay immediately, uh, or at least as riotous as Twitter gets. Uh, and now we see that um, we still haven't seen any hard numbers from Apple. Apple, that who tell you all about how many iPhone sales they'll do and all, all about their iPad sales, not so much about their iWatch sales. Um, it, it seems to me like are people really uh, catching on to this one. What, what are your thoughts here? There's some interesting stats, actually, if you go to payments.com on uh, adoption rates of all of the mobile payment methods. I think it's US rather than UK, but kind of interesting to take a look at that and it does show it's, it's really not caught the mass audience. I mean, it's, it's something we as a bank kind of, we're, we're one of the first banks out with, so we're, we're keen on it. But there's always that thing of, for the customer, can it be different enough to what you're doing already? And market like the UK, where you had contactless, um, it's not that much quicker to pull the Apple Pay out than the, um, the, the card. And therefore, I guess, why, why bother? If you can go higher transaction, great. But as you say, it's got to be accepted um, very universally for that to work. I, I uh, personally tried this uh, about a month ago, left all my cards behind going shopping, and uh, it's kind of embarrassing, actually, if you, if you get to a couple of retails and find that you, you can't pay 120 quid for uh, the goods um, when you get to the front of the queue. So uh, I think if you can get the universal adoption by the retailers, then uh, maybe you can kind of break through. But for me, it's not only the universal adoption, but the universal experience of having your phone run out of juice. And while that's, while that's a fact, while there are days when I get home and my phone's out, that means that I'm always going to have to bring a card anyway. And if that's the case, then actually it's generally easier to bring out the thing that's always going to work that I've always known is, you know, is there rather than use the smartphone. And especially with you know, the new challenger banks and neobanks and fintech where you get that push notification update anyway, there isn't really an additional experience that um, and an advantage to doing that. And I think that's the thing. In markets like the US and UK and Europe and Australia, we haven't seen that 10x improvement. But in markets like China and India, where mobile payments and Africa, where mobile payments have really taken off, it's not been contactless NFC mobile payments from Apple that have taken off. It's been airtime or QR codes or that sort of payment. And those sorts of payments numbers are doing phenomenal. And indeed, the in-app purchases are going absolutely phenomenal. But that's layered in top of you know sort of iTunes, on top of Visa and MasterCard, on top of the old online payment gateways, on top of uh, the bank system. So it's it's more innovation through abstraction that we're seeing rather than innovation through new user experience at the point of sale. But yet, the point of sale is still massive in terms of the overall volume of, of sales done in, in retail in, in any given uh, developed country. I, th I think it comes back to, like you say, the, the point that you're proving like what are you solving for the customer here and you know in in sort of african countries you know spending a bit of time last week in rwanda then you literally couldn't move in a marketplace that you wouldn't expect to take anything other than cash for stickers that said Tigo on them. You know, like mobile tap and pay was everywhere for everything. You couldn't walk more than about 40 meters to find a, a man with an umbrella who was a cash point. You know, like the, the problem that they were solving out there with, with tap and pay was, was very, very different than what Apple Pay was looking to, to sort of solve in the, in the UK, really. So uh, I completely agree with you, Jason. It just doesn't feel like the, the incremental service that you're given is, is enough to kind of care. Um, but um, but I, I guess the 
Apple don't usually sort of screw these things up and don't come back without sort of a, a V2 or a V3 that uh, really sort of, uh, oh, Simon's got a face. Jumped the shark, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> well, we will see. There you go, Tim Cook. We've laid down the gauntlet. So let's see what you do next, my friend. There's Steve Ballmer of Microsoft right there. Indeed. <laughs> Um, moving on, we have an article on American Banker. So this is, if banks wait for APIs to be mandated, it will be too late. Interesting point. What do you think, Jason? Mm, so article by Chris Griffin. Uh, and really, it's kind of an op-ed piece where he, he talks about the conversations he's had with bank CEOs and looking, I guess, to Europe to point at the fact that uh, that the PSD2 mandate and the CMA remedies around open banking uh, will likely hit the US at some point. And I guess it, it points to, to an interesting question as to whether APIs and open banking are a, an evil that you have to just implement at the most basic level, or whether you actually turn around and make this a platform play, uh, which arguably means that you're getting into a very different business because running an API-based business, it's an, essentially an entirely different business line. It's a, it could be an entirely new way of making money. You know, arguably banks could have, could have launched something like Stripe a long time ago or Klarna or any of those API, financial APIs as a service. And so, so I think it, it raises that interesting point around, do you see PSD2 as a, we just have to do it and here you go, the, here are the basic connections, or do you really embrace that and say, look, that's going to lead to change. Therefore, we need to, to be experts and actually to drive that. So listen, I, um, I, 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 I kind of agree. I'm going to slightly twist. Um, I was in China last week at the pleasure of um, visiting the, the kind of tech giants, fintech giants out there, uh, which was super interesting. And you kind of look at the way they've approached life. It's all about where's the customer pain points and how do I solve for those? And then they've built the connectivity to solve for those pain points. So it's actually much less about the tech and the APIs. And they didn't actually use the word API at all, but they've connected to 180 major banks. They're connecting to every hospital in China so they can offer people access to local health services because that's a major pain point for customers. Mm. And I think the mindset around that of focus on the use case, the customer pain point, is actually very different. To, we often get caught up in the, the tech rather than the, mm -hmm. the customer experience. And I, I found that very powerful when I was out there. It is an amazing place. I have to say, we, we talk about it very often on the show and it, it kind of feels like just the, the scale of everything out there is, is phenomenal, really. So if you start to access services at that scale, it just terrifies me. You know, we're, they, talk, uh, they talk billions and we talk millions, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the, many favorite quotes from the week, but one was, um, I won't say who from, but uh, someone senior in one of the firms said, uh, if you haven't got 10 million users on an app in three months, it's a bit of a failure, which uh, kind of blew I me think away. the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sets a pretty high bar for the rest of the world, doesn't it, in terms of where we're going. But I, I think there's a lot of sense in there, though, in terms of what they're, what they're saying about APIs. And like you say, actually focusing on the what it is that you're going to do with it rather than just putting it in for the sake of doing it. I do fear a little bit that PSD2 goes the way that a lot of the other regulation has and you get to the point where it is a watered down version of it. But again, I know that a lot of players are you know, in the market to stop that happening essentially. Regular listeners will know I've been saying this is the next PM for, for some time and it's the uh, I'm really, really bearish on PSD2 and CMA Remedy as a, uh, as a piece of regulation to drive innovation. I am very excited by what I see some of the smaller and even some of the larger banks doing as they grapple with what can they, what value can they add to the market. Because if you think about it in terms of how can I add value to the customers, how can I drive more revenue, how can this really make sense for me as an organization, then it becomes very different to how do I tick the box so the regulator doesn't kick me. That's not a way to approach it. If you approach this in a really positive way, it can be good outcomes for customers. And Jason, you know, your blog post on it's not about uh, banking it's not about technology it's about end-to-end -end customer journeys that sort of thing of i want to buy a house i don't want to go to my bank and to my solicitor and to the market and to blah 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 i, I want to be able to go to one place and for it to be concierged all the way through thinking in those ways and apis being an enabler behind that i think is is definitely the future totally agree i think the number of people who define to richard's point apis from a tech perspective rather than 
them enabling end-to-end customer journeys with the integration of data and digital services from different partners on a particular platform is really interesting. But but equally, that's the point which I find the majority of banks struggle with because they've been so used to owning the journey, being sort of isolated within the banking app, the branch, the phone line, to suddenly have to play well with others and to integrate into journeys that don't necessarily live within a banking app. That's a very diff- a different mindset that's a, a real change yeah i think that's that's fair um so i was at an open banking summit yesterday and a lot of discussion around these sort of topics i think it also depends where you're coming from i guess if you look at the large corporate end of what banks have done they've actually done not api rest based stuff but kind of older school integration technologies to quite a wide range of clients to their sap to their oracle uh, to platforms like fx all to 360t um, so yeah, there is quite a bit of experience set there of integrations and it not just being about your service. Your service is part of a wider ecosystem. I think that the challenge is, can you get the technology kind of to REST APIs with modern, modern standards? And how can you bring that across the, all of the bank? And I, 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 I actually, I'm very encouraged by kind of, people are really getting this and starting to move now. Richard, you make a really good point there because in the commercial banking, corporate banking world, what this is all about is, is normal. I mean, you're used to dealing with customers that expect you to be part of their end-to-end customer journeys. And actually, I'm surprised we've not seen more conversation in the corporate banking space about what PSD2 enables. So if I'm Coca-Cola or Pepsi or uh, Unilever, I have um, bank accounts with how many countries in the world, how many banks in the world. I want to be able to see what that all looks like in one place. Well, if I'm a bank that can offer APIs or even a service on top of those APIs, take all of that data and and push it in front of them. I'm more valuable to Coca-Cola or Unilever or whomever you may put there. And I think that thinking is really important. But the second point you make about the the mindset shift, one of my bugbears, having uh, worked with kind of a number of organizations uh, on the commercial banking side uh, earlier on in my career, is a lot of them tell me, oh, well, I've been doing APIs since the 80s. Oh, I've, and the point about actually there is something different about an open API that anybody can pick up and the security you need to put around that and the end-to-end customer journeys and everything you need to think through that's a bit harder i really think it is that's not great i guess i think on the point about say you leave or whoever big big corporate clients they have built typically actually aggregation platforms via things like swift um via host host connections to their banks to aggregate their data into their treasury functions um I think often that's taken a long time to set up. There's been a six, 12, 18 month cycle to do bespoke integrations. Mm-hmm. I think the really exciting opportunity is to make that far more plug and play via standardized APIs. But actually combine this with the TransferWise story and uh, there's something about the, the collapsing the market the services that could have been given or are given to Coca-Cola and to Pepsi and to GM and to everyone else that take armies of bankers and six to 12 months to implement are now suddenly available to small businesses, to sole traders, to SMEs. And almost that you can you can draw the same parallel on the retail banking side, that the equivalent of having that Swiss private banker who would look after all of your finances you know, uh, in his uh, lovely leather-lined office can now be offered through digital services to to everyone, so I love that. I love that collapsing the market. Piece. There's something really there, Jason, about the collapsing the market. I like, and and in addition to the once you've done that, think about who buys that. The person that buys that, or the organization that buys that, is probably the um, the startup of tomorrow, the company that's going to be big. It's not the companies that are already big. They're, they've already got those connections. But it, there's a real opportunity cost to not getting this right as an organization. If you want to win the company that's going to be the next Facebook, Google, whomever, the, the really big companies with the really big accounts and lots of floats and lots of FX, you know, the stuff that's really going to make money for the banks, then you need to be offering these services, I think, as a, as a commercial bank. And I think the, I mean, people have tried this before. I won't get the name of providers, but 10 years ago, some of the providers did try to bring some of those services down from the large corporate end to the SMEs. Um, I think the, the absolute premium there is how do you make it intuitive and easy? It's not just about functionality, it's about the, the ease there. And that's kind of why I love what some of the accounting software guys are up to at the moment. I'm very much trying to focus on that intuitive interface. Mm. Absolutely. 
Indeed. Uh, moving on to the next story, we have British firm Cedars plans a secondary market for crowdfunded shares, which is quite an interesting one when we really sort of dug into this. Before we get started on this one, I managed to catch up with Jeff Lynn, the CEO of Cedars, to hear what he was up to. So we're talking to Jeff Lynn, the CEO of Cedars. Hi, Jeff. Uh, tell us a little bit more about Cedars and how the crowdfunding model works for you guys. Hey, David. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah. So, so Cedars is very simply a, a platform uh, for investing in early stage and, and growth companies. Um, it's come to be known as equity crowdfunding. Really, we think of it uh, more simply as as a marketplace for early stage capital. Anyone can invest in businesses they believe in and share in their success, and businesses can raise capital and build community in the process, all through a pretty simple online process. Um, so that's us in a nutshell. We launched um, just under five years ago. We've seen about 220 million pounds invested to date. We've done over 500 deals. We're now actually the most active investor in private companies anywhere in the UK. So it's been a good uh, it's been a good journey so far. Um, but we're still very much just at the beginning, and we got a very long way to go before we uh, before we take over the world. Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. There's some big numbers in there, right? Yeah, I guess crowdfunding with. Uh you know, lots of the um, the fintech startups that we're particularly sort of interested in is really sort of st- taking off now. So it's uh, an amazing time to be doing what you're doing, right? Yeah, it really is. I mean, I think we're getting very much into this phase where more and more businesses are realizing that having at least some component of their financing done through a platform like ours, uh, you know, often sitting alongside venture, alongside angel money, you know, there are a number of different good sources of capital out there. But what we contribute to the process, both at seed and at later stage, I think is becoming better and better known. And, and we're now seeing it as sort of a, a nat- natural kind of part of the journey for almost any any growth business. Fantastic. And the article that came out this week, you've launched a secondary market. So this seems like a bit of a different take on the the, uh, process. So how does that work? Tell us a little bit more. Well, fun, you know, f- fundamentally, all that we're really trying to do is solve one of the, the, the age-old problems when investing in this asset class, which is that it's a very, very long-term and highly illiquid asset class. So when people invest, and we have people investing everywhere from you know friends and family, putting in small amounts all the way up to big, uh, high net worth and institutional investors. And for all of them, you know, they know that when they come into this space, when they're investing in early-stage companies, they're going to have to wait seven years, ten years, maybe longer to see a return if the company's successful. Well, that's part of it. However, if there's an opportunity to potentially give some of them an early exit, and at the same time, give other people who may have missed out or may want to increase their shareholding the chance to buy in, we feel that we want to facilitate it. We built the platform in a way that makes it fairly easy to do this kind of a, of a, of a secondary market. And so what we're building and we'll be, we'll be launching very shortly um, is a market simply where people who want to sell some of the shares that they've invested in through Cedars can do so and other people can buy them. Very cool. It, it kind of feels like it starts to sort of democratize a little bit startup investment. You know, this isn't just the uh, elusive thing of those uh, big big VCs, right? Well, that's a, you know that's a key part of our mission, and we talk about democratization a lot. I mean, I I'm very passionate personally, and we're passionate as a company about startups and early stage investments as an asset class. You know, it is a high risk asset class, but as a portion of an overall portfolio, you stand that, you know, it gives you the ability to potentially outperform the returns of almost any other investment. Um, And, you know, we think that everybody should be able to put a reasonable proportion of their their overall assets into this asset class. Um, And so that's what we're really there to do. And, and, you know, the secondary market hopefully makes that even easier. Very cool. So how, how can people get involved? How can people learn more about the secondary market? And can anybody invest in this or is it sort of uh, ring fence for certain people? Well, so right now, it is only for people who have already invested in a company through Cedars. So the first way to get involved is to join Cedars and to invest in any of the many new new companies that are coming on all the time. We have you know, new businesses almost every day seeking to raise capital. And then once you've invested in one of those businesses, if you later want to sell your shares or increase your stake, you can use the secondary market to do that. Where can our listeners learn a little bit more about Cedars? 
Yeah, so we've got a fantastic blog and a bunch of really, really good content on our site. So cedars.com and, and the learn section. Um, we've got, we put together a few really good videos and posts about the secondary market. And I would strongly encourage anybody to um, take a look at those. I think that does a, a great job. Our chief investment officer, Tom Davies, um, has just has done a brilliant job of really explaining how it works, what the value of it is. Um, and then more broadly, you know, I think, you know, just having one of the nice things about having such a low price point in the sense that the minimum investment is 10 pounds, is you know, we encourage people to give it a try. There's no need to put a vast fortune in. You know, Go through the process, see what you think, and if you like what you see, make a small investment, make several, uh, and then grow from there. Nothing quite like learning by doing. Fantastic. Always a big fan of learning by doing. So, Jeff, thank you very much for joining us. We'll definitely be back in touch when this one progresses. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Cool. Really good and it's quite a unique proposition, this one, really. I, you know, I have to say the idea of really sort of democratizing the investment in startups for me feels like it allows the whole thing just to go mainstream, really. You know, anybody who has a, a feeling about somebody like a Monzo or whoever in the market can now start to get more involved, which for me can only be really a good thing. What do you guys think? Is it not restricted only to people that have already kind of bought into the shares in the company, which kind of felt to me like a really key factor in that, in terms of the liquidity that will be available? Yeah, you have to have a, a, a record of investment via Cedars, and you have to have made some investment. So it's but, any company rather than just, I, I took it as just that company. You had to already bought some shares, and then you could buy some more. But it, it's no, actually, it was okay. a, a, an initial investment, but you could broaden it out at that point. So, so is this the needing to be a sophisticated investor piece yeah there's always an element of that isn't there with anything that, that you do i don't think they're going to let um very much like we've seen on crowdcube and various different things there's quite smart ways of making sure that people are kind of not blindly just sort of throwing some money into the fire but um and especially when you're talking about very early startups then this is basically like making everybody have the potential to be an angel investor which is you know risky at best but uh, potentially could have a lot of upside so the world economic forum calls one of the six major trends in financial services being democratization of access to to capital. Um, and the point you make about sophisticated investors is interesting because uh, for most people who aren't uh, high net worth or even uh, a premier customer, uh, you are now living in a world in which you have negative interest rates, your currency is probably deflating pretty quickly, uh, and therefore the amount of money you're earning, unless you're getting a decent pay rise every year, you're actually going backwards in real terms. And there aren't many places you can save that money. Uh, and the, the only places you really could are the traditional places, so uh, savings accounts aren't making much money so you can try and play the stock market if you know what you're doing um that was the old-fashioned thing uh for, for the 80s 90s is you buy a few shares and a few indices and you may do okay and you may make a seven percent return every year but in the past sort of 15 20 years since the dot-com boom we've had the world of startups and largely the general public have missed out and the startups have been coming to the market later and later and later by the time facebook ipos they're worth 38 billion dollars by the time most of these companies ipo snapchat was $4 billion. Most of their real growth has already happened by the time they get to the public markets. And it's only the insiders that are getting to really benefit from that, the investment banks and the asset managers and the VCs. So this platform makes sense. But then you look at the liquidity in the platform, they've raised a total of 210 million pounds from 200,000 users. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, that's not a lot. But if you're one of those 200,000 users, it's pretty interesting. But the problem, of course, was that there was, you weren't really able to do anything. You bought those shares and then you were stuck until that company had a liquidation, uh, not liquidation, but an exit event of some sort, a liquidity event. Uh, so it's a really interesting idea. I just don't know that it makes a big difference to the general population. There's also, I mean, some survivorship bias in this. Not everyone becomes Twitter and, and Facebook. You know, we were talking about Tandem's problems last week with having to give their license back. And I don't know if you remember, but they raised a million on crowdfunding at 65 million valuation uh, and, and I think the majority of people who put that that money in weren't you know big investors in a variety of things they really believed in new banks and putting money in there and arguably they've you know lost some of that that money in the meantime so there's there's something great about the democratization but VCs have taken a bath over the last few years as well in terms of you know right being downs. truly successful so are we democratizing losses to the uh, you know to the mass market so as well Karim was on our um, blockchain uh, special uh, this past Wednesday 
Wednesday, and he said that when he spoke to the FCA about, uh, so Kadim Schuber from the FT, when he spoke to the FCA about crowdfunding, they said, well, people that are investing in crowdfunding are generally enthusiasts. They generally are using money that they don't care about. And we generally think that th- there aren't a lot of people losing massive amounts of money. And when we've looked at the data and, and we kind of see the same. And the numbers there, I was talking about 200,000 users, 270 million. This is the fintech bubble. This is the inner circle. Uh, If this ever gets out of the fintech bubble, I think it needs to change quite substantially. I think you need to be buying portfolios of these companies like a VC does. Uh, And actually, who creates that product? Who creates the portfolio in emerging companies that are pre-listed? The people that do that and offer that to the market as a savings product and can manage some of that risk, that is a more sophisticated product, but I think that's a role out there to be played um, that nobody's playing. Now, listen, I agree. I think... uh if you are going to truly democratize it, you've got to make sure it's safe for customers. Um, it, it's fine if it's a small crowd that sort of know what they're getting in for and are kind of in the scene as well. Um, if you are going to make it mass market, you, you've got to make sure it's, it's safe for the end customers. Clearly, some work going on there with the innovative finance ISA is coming through. So this government's kind of going that direction, um, but I think probably still quite a way to go to get to equity crowdfunding being a mass market. It's interesting, I guess, when you compare it with the the traditional exchanges. We were talking about ICOs last week. Now we're talking about crowdfunding platforms allowing a bit more of an exchange-like vibe. You know, it's it's not just the London Stock Exchange or the Bourse or wherever, um, but equally, those places are pretty well regulated in terms of what you can do and manipulating stock price, everything else. I assume if someone puts out a big blog post or a, starts a Twitter storm that then drops the price in Cedars, who's there to check, you know, how that works? Or insider trading, or variety. And of so this was this was rumored to be one of the issues with a lot of the secondary markets um, that, that have been out there in the crowdfunding space for some time. And this is something that I'm interested to see how Cedars manage. Now their overall volume and liquidity around 210 million. It's probably not going to catch the attention of the regulators anytime soon, unless something really blows up. But if it did catch scale, to your point, that you could manipulate that market really easily. Um, and to to the point about 210 million of liquidity, the ICO space at the moment has around 10 billion of liquidity. So the Cedars platform seems mainstream and fintech, but actually there's there's an amazing thing happening right now. And and actually, but but to all the points you just made, all of those risks apply to that and there is no regulation. Hmm. Was I that think tulips earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I think this is a really interesting one. I think we'll, you know, definitely be watching what happens in this and see how mainstream it goes. And on that note, let's hear from some of our sponsors. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to ft.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. 11FS Pulse Update. This is Ross from 11FS. And this is Megan from 11FS. For this week's Pulse Update, where in the world are we going, Megan? We are going to fabulous Finland. Oh, okay. So, excellent racing drivers, reindeer, and of course, the birthplace of a ton of great technical innovations. What is going on in the world of Finnish digital banking? Yeah, so Finland is quite a unique market. It's traditionally dominated by the traditional players. There's a really high internet penetration rate, a lot of cool initiatives uh, in the world of technology and mobile. Think Nokia, and what we're seeing are these traditional banks roll out some really cool standalone apps that focus on payments and PFM. 
Can you give us a couple of examples that are maybe sitting in the, the Pulse platform? Sure. So the first is the Pivo app from OP. So this is a wallet that has some really great PFM features and payment capabilities. So in addition to being able to make NFC payments and collect loyalty points, customers can really quickly and easily send and request payments to anyone with a mobile number. Nice. The second one we have is Certo, which is from Nordea. So this is an app that just focuses on peer-to-peer payments, again, where customers in a few clicks can easily send and request money from people. Cool, they both sound pretty awesome. Um, where can listeners see these and a lot of other great digital banking journeys? Yep, they can go to our website, 11fs.com, and look up 11fs Pulse. Welcome back to part two. And first up, we have a story on AFR.com. How Pocketbook went from a Sydney spreadsheet to a fintech with 300,000 users. Now, I think this one's quite interesting because pretty much every time we talk about Australian banking, it's generally just about them trying to shoo away Apple Pay or, you know, something along these lines, trying to sort of protect the market. But it feels like there's actually quite a blossoming fintech community out there. So 300,000 users in Australia, that's pretty big, right? Well, Australia has always been a market that has adopted EMV and contactless almost as quickly as anywhere else in the world. Um, and because, you know, relatively small population, relatively few banks, uh, but relatively strong economy, um, as you know, really, in fact, in the past 15, 20 years, it's been one of the better performing developed economies in the world. There's there's no reason why they shouldn't have this burgeoning ecosystem of, of startups. They've got all the talent down there that you could ever wish for. Uh, so, to me, I'm just surprised we had, haven't seen this sooner, really. Um, but, you know, long may this continue. And I, I really suspect we might see more of this and we might start looking to these to case studies uh, and look to learn from, from what Australia are doing and bringing them elsewhere because that's pretty rapid growth. I mean, from as a percentage of the population, that's, that's huge. I think the, the interesting thing on this as well is that Australia's regulatory system has generally been protecting of the, the, the big organisations. And actually, we've seen a switch here where, uh, innovation and fintech is being sort of fostered, you know, very much like we've seen in, in the UK with the FCA. So uh, for me, this feels like, a, you know, a, a great step forward. And the fact that they've managed to acquire so many customers in such a short period of time is is awesome. Kind of connected to this, um, and I'll be honest, the naming of this could have done with a little bit more work, was the, the Finneys this week, which is the Australian Fintech Awards. And, and there were some really interesting ones in here. And I'll be honest, like the companies I'd, I'd kind of never really heard of that much, really. So I think um, in conclusion, I'm going to go and take a, a much closer look at Australian fintech and uh, see what's actually happening down under. As uh, it if were. you're an Australian listener, reach out on Twitter at Fintech Insiders and um, tell us what's going on. We, we're looking for an excuse to visit and do a, a takeover show down there. And, and plus, um, tell us all about your startup that's based down there. And we'll get, an in- get you on for an interview. Well, coincidentally, I'm about to be- become a non-executive director of a fintech in Australia. Australia. So I'll be able to uh, to tell you a bit more about that in a, a week or so. Is that linked? So I read an article this week around uh, the Australian PRA seems to kind of do what the UK has done with the pretty forward thinking uh, authorization regime for, for new challenger banks. Uh, uh, I saw something there about trying to really bring that to bear on the market. So yeah. probably some linkage, I guess. Indeed. <laughs> Next up, we have a really interesting article which states that Pension B partners up with Revolut, which is quite an interesting one. Jason, what's going on here? Mm, well, we managed to get hold of the Pensions B CEO to uh, to talk about what was going on there. We're here with Roby Savova, the CEO of Pension B, to talk about their great new launch, uh, partnering with Revolut. Hi, Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks very much. Yeah, so uh, interesting partnership deal for you guys to have signed. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yes, absolutely. So for a limited time only, uh, Revolut users will be able to combine their pensions online uh, simply by logging into their Revolut app uh, and following on to Pension B. Um, And we're really, really excited about the launch because we sense a real kind of solidarity with other fintech companies who are out there working to make people's finances simpler, better, and of course, more cost effective. Pensions then, they are, you know, fintech, we see a lot about payments and bill splitting and that kind of stuff, but they're really, really important and they're not a greatly accessible product. So things like this are brilliant. Yes, we agree. Absolutely. I mean, I think any time that you kind of read the fintech 
press or, or, you know, most coverage of fintech is really around payments, around banking. Um, and I think pensions have sort of been forgotten by people. Um, I think that partially has to do with the complexity around the pension product, um, or at least the complexity that the legacy providers make us think needs to be there. But we at Pension B, of course, believe that pensions should be simple. I mean, at the end of the day, this is just money that you are putting into an account, which will help you to sustain yourself later on. And there's nothing too complicated about that. And we work really hard to kind of demystify and remove all the jargon um, that comes with pensions. So we're actually excited to be getting more coverage of, of this really important product. So this kind of uh, strategy of, of integrating with other players, I know that you've you did some work with a friend of a friend of ours, uh, Bud uh, Marketplace yeah. as well. Is, is that a strategy for you guys to try and fit in, you know, to other ecosystems as well as exist on your own? Yes, I think it's really, really important to be able to play nicely in the ecosystem, you know, if you will. I think that these days consumers have choices about where they want to be, which type of products they want to use, and we want to be where consumers are. Um, so I think in terms of the Bud partnership, we thought, well, how amazing is it for everybody to be able to aggregate all of their finances in one space? And of course, your pension should be there. Um, so that was the strategy behind that. I think when we think about Revolut, we recognize that Revolut is an amazing company and has grown phenomenally in the UK. And we think that Revolut users are really likely to enjoy having an online pension. Um, so it's really about trying to find where your customer is and fitting into the way that they want their finances to be. What's next for Pension B? Well, at Pension B, we're really, really focused on making sure that our customer base is growing and that our customers are receiving the best pension experience possible. Um, so as part of our product development, we hone in on what our customers are really saying. What is it that they want next? Um, and one of the things that's actually come up is that they want more investment products. And so we're actually working with a couple of, you know, really big asset managers to bring on some new options, um, including options that align with your values. So if you value our environment and you want your pension to be invested in companies that are doing good for the environment, then we want that option to be available through Pension B. Uh, we're finding some other kind of requests and, um, you know, we're working really, really hard to deliver those. So I would say our strategy always is listen to the customer, hear what they want you to do, and then just do it. Great. Well, we'll hopefully hear more about that very soon. Uh, Romy, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Yeah, so there's, there's obviously something really interesting here about the marketplace banking movement, about neobanks or uh, challenger banks starting to try and connect personal finance with a variety of other players. It, we've seen that unbundling. Everyone's seen that classic slide of, of a big bank and the various fintechs that are cutting off tiny pieces of, of the user journeys. But no one wants 20 or 30 different apps on their phone. So in some ways, these things have to, to rebundle. And we're seeing it with Starling and their, their deals with TransferWise and Moneybox. You know, we're seeing it at Monzo. We're seeing it with Revolut. There's definitely something there. Mm. It seems like an odd marriage, I guess, this one. It feels like, you know, going from a sort of a light snack and a 17-course meal, doesn't it? You know, a pension to what Revolut offers seems quite extreme. So be very interesting to see how this one uh, this one progresses. Uh, next up, we have Crypto Craziness. Wow, that definitely needs a jingle, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, we, well, as as our regular listeners will know, we're doing a series of regular specials on into all things blockchain. So this past Wednesday, we did our first of three. Uh, this coming Wednesday, of course, we'll have the second of three. Uh, the first of three was talking all about tokens, and the second one will be talking all about what happened in Consensus. Consensus is the annual conference by Coindesk.com, uh, where everybody comes in the blockchain community to announce what it is 
they're doing. Uh, and possibly one of the biggest announcement was JP Morgan Chase integrating a, a technology called Zcash into their own enterprise blockchain platform. Now, Zcash is the reaction to Bitcoin not being private enough. So they, they came along with a magic piece of technology called Zero Knowledge Proofs. So this basically allows you almost perfect privacy in a public forum. One of the criticisms of blockchains and DLTs always was that if I have a perfectly public record that is perfectly transparent, that's not really good for commercial confidentiality. I might have legitimate reasons for everybody in the world not to know how much money I've got, or for not for them not to know uh, some of the transactions. There might be nothing illegal about those. There might just be something I don't want the world to know. And of course, uh, JP Morgan have built a technology called Quorum. And Quorum is basically uh, taking the open source technology Ethereum and building their own version of it to do uh, their own smart contracts platform. And they are very, very hopeful that that's going to do well and that the market will adopt it. But they had the problem you would expect. Doing very large transactions in the open, in the public, turned out to not be too good for commercial confidentiality. So by integrating Zcash, that allows you to operate in public, but to perfectly obfuscate those transactions, to perfectly mask those transactions so nobody can see what's going on unless you have the keys to that transaction, then you've really got something quite special. Zcash um, and the uh, whole technology behind it actually has its own currency. And when this story hit, the currency went up by 125%. Wow. Because how do you buy shares in a technology that's open source? Well, if it's got a cryptocurrency, you can now buy shares in open source technology, which I think is a really, really interesting idea. And I'm going to be watching this one very, very closely because JP Morgan do have previous of uh, breaking away from the likes of industry consortia, backing their own technology pretty hard in financial markets and pushing it. So this is going to be one to watch. If you work in uh, capital markets or even in asset management, uh, I would I would watch this one very, very but closely. But is this not also the Bitcoin of Bitcoin, you know, the drug dealer's perfect currency? Are we going to get back to that? Are we going to have another punch up on, the, on crime and cryptocurrencies? We could well do. I mean... It- <laughs> The, the nature of this technology is that you can use it for nefarious means and you can use it for very, very good means, just like you can with cash. The really interesting thing about most of the commercial implementations is the fact that you can give the regulator a key to those transactions. So if the regulator suspects any wrongdoing or if anybody in the chain suspects any wrongdoing, so let's say, Jason, you and I are transacting and my bank and your bank and the regulator are the only ones with the keys to that transaction. If any of them suspect anything's gone wrong, they can unlock that. But but only the holders of the keys can unlock that. And that is mathematically provable. That is not something you can do in today's financial system. It's actually very, very hard to do that in today's financial system. Of the $2 trillion of annual uh, money laundering and uh, uh, terrorist finance and everything else that goes wrong in the financial system, we see about 2% of that. And of that 2%, law enforcement successfully moves forward with a further 2% of that 2%. So the problem with a paper-based, highly distributed... Uh, financial system is there's a lot of things slipping through the cracks so this even though it seems to be adding privacy and uh, more ways of hiding things if it's built in the right way could be very very good uh, for preventing crime but it's it's like splitting the atom nuclear power or nuclear bomb it's, it's... yeah i hate to break up the uh, kind of growing fight here around the, <laughs> is it the source of all crime or not i mean just to kind of change tack i mean one of the things super interesting from china was um, when I went to saw Tencent there. So they've got gold packets, red packets, red packets everyone knows about. Gold packets is um, actual physical gold um, being uh, sent around. Um, and so they, they introduced this around Chinese New Year this year. And uh, uh, you get enough gold, you can then um, take it out and uh, get something made from it from a, a third party. Um, and that's that's actually sitting on uh, DLT. Um, so it's kind of live in production. Wow. And just kind of actually really amazed me that you, there's a lot of Proof of concepts going on um, around the West at the moment, but actually live in production instance, um, very impressive. And Alibaba have uh, bought into this. Um, Spotify just bought a company. Uh, and then Foxconn, uh, was it Foxconn or Qualcomm? One of those two is live in their supply chain, managing their upstream supply chain financing using DLT. So people often say this is a, a solution looking for a problem. And I, I point to all of the live implementations that people in China are using, or to uh, Northern Trust, who are live with asset servicing in, in the UK, or to uh, BNP Paribas, who are live with micro 
bonds in France and say, actually, these are profitable businesses uh, that are using the technology here today. And for new listeners, DLT is? Distributed ledger technology, which to me is the, uh, there's clapping going on in the room here, just pointing at everything. <laughs> DLT <laughs> is a, a broader term. So if DLT is vehicle, blockchain is car. If DLT is vehicle, then there might be boats and the planes and so on. So it's just a broader term that encompasses blockchain and a lot of similar things that are technically different, which helps you avoid arguments with people because a lot of people like to argue about this stuff. I'll be honest, it's never going to help you avoid all of the arguments, is it? But um, speaking of boats and planes, moving on to our our next uh, story on Reuters. So... This is that the Bank of America, HSBC, Intel, and others invest $107 million in blockchain startup R3. Very interesting one, Simon, here. Like, given all of the sort of negativity over the last uh, maybe sort of month or two in the press, then, you know, R3 have really sort of uh, sealed pretty big deal. Rabbit out of a hat, um, Dave Rutter. Um, I... I and doff my cap to you, sir. Uh, no, R3, of course, is this consortium of over 80 financial services organizations uh, who have uh, collaborated to basically say, we know that there's something in this DLT thing. We want to collaborate and build some open source technology together and or look at use cases and or learn where we have shared problems as an industry. And for anything with 80 different organizations in, of course, it's not perfect. Of course, there are challenges with it. Uh, but there are a lot of doubters saying, that these guys were never going to raise uh, their round. They were never going to get their money. So this is definitely interesting. Uh, and it comes, of course, on the heels of Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and Santander having publicly and, and very, very uh, making a big show of it left R3. What, what we can see going on behind the scenes here is certain banks who uh, have a history of building their own technology and pushing it onto the market, having repeated, uh, having re- uh, kind of gone back to what they do and then certain banks who prefer open source low-cost technology endorsing that if you look at um, the u.s market there is around 222 trillion liquidity in capital markets over there of the banks that are still in there from the u.s there's around 100 trillion of liquidity so all three has a critical mass of a certain degree but a good chunk of that left when jp and goldman left as well so the u.s market uh, is an interesting one for r3 But outside of the US, if you look at Europe and Asia, R3 makes up the majority of those capital markets um, float and and liquidity. So R3 is in a really interesting uh, spot from a game of risk perspective. But with Corda, uh, with their platform, do they have what it takes to be able to get people to to really get this to where it needs? Either way, I think uh, it's very interesting times to watch DLT. And and to the point Richard made earlier, we're we're moving beyond, uh, is this just a proof of concept anymore? And, And people are generating real revenue, real returns. And actually, if you're as an organization um, don't want to be involved, then fine. But I think there are opportunity costs and uh, opportunities here that people are missing. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think we're I'm pleased to be part of R3 and uh, kind of pleased to be part of the round. Um, for us, very much it's about collaborating here to try and drive forwards um, use cases for customers. Uh, I think particularly trade finance is one that excites us. Clearly something that's um, STP often people joke in trade finance is straight to paper and uh, <laughs> it's not just, straight through processing straight to paper yeah <laughs> can, can you kind of move beyond that to get a much faster more accessible more secure means for people to kind of go across that whole trade chain of people that are often in different countries different banks um, different languages etc um, so I think so lots, lots more to come here lots more to get it into live um, production but uh, clearly yeah, exciting developments Indeed. Well, it's uh, very similar to the API debate really earlier on. It's uh, it's good to see sort of the R3 and actually everybody that's in there really sort of focusing on what it can do. Like you say, the, the use cases are probably the most important thing in this. You don't care how Netflix works. You care that it, what content it's got. Um, and I think the banks don't care how uh, R3's quarter may work or Enterprise Ethereum Alliance may work. They care that this is going to reduce operational costs, that it's going to reduce the cost of reporting, that they care that it's potentially going to uh, create new profitable products for them to be able to sell into the market. Uh, And that, to me, is what their customers also care about. So uh, it's going to be a long road for it to get there, but interesting one to watch, especially with the emergence of the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. Find out more on our show on Wednesday, uh, Blockchain Special. And on that note, thank you very much for coming in and joining us, Richard. Uh, Where can people learn a little bit more about you and what your team are up to? Uh, So, I mean, in terms of myself, uh, LinkedIn's probably the best source. Uh, I think 
HPC, clearly we've got uh, some websites around the world. And I think uh, we, we sort of release um, updates around what we're releasing to customers fairly regularly. So yeah, LinkedIn plus uh, our main website. Fantastic. So that's all we have for today. Thank you very much for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. That's all for now. Thanks very much.